Welcome to the Touring Plans Podcast. Welcome back to the Touring Plans Podcast. I'm Angela Dahlgren, here with my co-host, Brian McNichols. Hello, everyone. And we are answering your questions from our Facebook page. So let's jump right in. Sorry, I threw you off with my cheering. (laughs) You did. (laughs) I started laughing. Okay, so let's jump right into it. This first question is from Alicia. Hi, my family loves watching the videos. She's referring to our videos from our YouTube page, which is just Touring Plans on YouTube, which Brian and I are very active there, as well as Guy Selga, and sometimes Seth, Mm -hmm. but he's mainly on our Facebook page. We are becoming annual pass holders for a year and would like to try out a few resorts in 2019. We have a split stay reserved at the Polynesian and Port Orleans Riverside, but I'm wondering what you think about split stays and the possible disadvantages in terms of getting fast passes and advanced dining reservations. Also, is there a good number of nights to stay at each resort to prevent it from feeling too hectic? Thanks for taking our questions. Now, Brian definitely has experience with this because he's done this several times, so I'll mainly let him take charge of this, but I'll just kind of add my thoughts here and there. Yeah, I don't think I've stayed at the same resort for an entire Disney trip since something like 2012. Really? Yeah, even my family trips, we tend to do actually what what Alicia is uh, talking about, where we'll stay a couple nights at a moderate and then a couple at a deluxe so we can get a taste of that deluxe life without having to pay for the entire week there. And I think the time before that, we did Universal and Disney, and I think we ended up switching at Disney still. like we, We do that a lot, actually. And then when I'm traveling for work, I tend to stay in a different hotel just about every night, if not every night, because... It just helps when when you want to get good you know reviews of all the hotels. Mm-hmm. It's uh, just an easier way to do it rather than than have people go down multiple times. So and that is slightly easier because there's just one of yeah. you as opposed to moving your entire family. Oh yeah, it's it's much easier when it's when it's just me and especially one night a piece. I don't even bother unpacking at all. It's just it's just right. living out of the suitcase quite literally. So. Well, not literally. I'm not living in the suitcase, I guess. But uh, I can fit inside a suitcase. I'm sure you can. I I can fit inside a refrigerator box, I think. But where do we go from there? No, no, no. I'm just going to ignore it and keep going. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to go to her her second part of her question first. Or good idea. Uh, which is about feeling hectic there. Obviously, every night is very hectic. I would never recommend that to people, especially with a family. Absolutely. I find if you're at least like three nights in a hotel, that's that's not bad. Having two full days in between, to me, is not that big a deal. I also don't mind not really unpacking and getting super comfortable. What my wife and I usually do, we'll kind of unpack the kids' stuff and put them in some of the drawers. And our stuff, we tend to just leave in the suitcases because then it's easier for the kids to find their own stuff and get dressed and things like that than it is having them digging through the suitcase and taking everything out to get to their own clothes. But any any shorter than three nights, I would imagine, is probably a little bit crazy. Anything longer than that, and then you're, you know, you're talking about maybe not even switching, depending on how long you're staying. But if you were there eight or nine nights and split it you know, just about down the middle, I don't think there would be any problem there. And Disney is great about transferring luggage. Uh, all you do is go to Bell Services at the hotel and or call them 
They will come pick up your bags from your room. They send it to the next resort. It's really no problem at all. The only issue there is that the bags don't actually get to the next hotel until something like three or four in the afternoon usually. So Mm -hmm. if your room is ready early and you're there at like noon, your bags will not be. So you're going to have to get them later. But other than that, there's really no issues. And the, the fast passes and dining reservations are not an issue at all. Disney's website tends to not work great, but this is one thing I've never had a problem with on the day that you can make your first fast pass and dining reservations for your first check-in day, it will work all the way through as long as there's no gaps. If you say stayed at one hotel for three nights, then went to Universal for two nights, then back to Disney, then it wouldn't it wouldn't work. You would have to make them as two separate vacations, like the, the dining reservations and all that. But uh, if they are consecutive, there will be no problem. You can make them all the way through. And I think that three nights definitely gives you a good taste of each resort, gives you time to kind of explore and try out the food and the restaurants, the pools maybe. So I definitely agree with that number. And possible disadvantages, really, the only disadvantage is that you have to take the time to pack up your stuff the night before or the morning Mm -hmm. you leave before you transfer to another resort. But I think it's a good idea. Personally, I have never done it just because we've always been in a situation where we have just stayed at one resort the entire time and we've traveled with babies and young toddlers. But it's something that I definitely want to do at some point. My husband, on the other hand, does not. He likes being in one place the entire time, but I am working on him. That is a really good question, though, Alessia. So thank Since you I'm the one asking. booking your hotel reservations for your next work trip, I can tell you we'll be switching then. So. <laughs> well, perfect. <laughs> Great opportunity for me. Thanks, Brian. All right, next question is by Claire, and this is a very good question that I will be filming a video about very soon. She says, hi guys, lots of people, including myself, seem to be confused about the new digital writer switch, also called baby swap or writer swap. Child swap or child switch. Yeah, there's like 40 names for this thing, (laughs) depending on who you talk to. (laughs) I know. It's very confusing. Would love your take on it, please. So um, our coworker, David, just kind of tested it out for us in early July. So we got his take on it as well. And going off of what he said, I kind of wrote a little blurb about it to read to you. Here we go. When you get to the attraction, arrive with everyone who wants to ride and tell them you want to use Rider Switch. The cast member will have everyone tap in using your, I guess, card reader or your magic band. Or or RFID-enabled ticket, yes. They will have everyone tap in at the FastPass readers, including the second ride group in your party. By doing so, the second group is essentially getting a FastPass of sorts assigned to them with a return time. So this process used to involve paper tickets, whose return time was valid from the end of the day kind of to the end of the month. It used to be a really long return time, and now it's much shorter. They usually want the second group to ride shortly after the first group finishes. So as you can see, like very much they've shortened that return time. FastPass Plus users now need to tap in before getting the rider switch. Before, only the first group had to tap in. So the second group could have their separate fast pass selection. So they could make theirs separately from the first group, if that makes sense. And basically, you could kind of cheat the system and get double the fast passes mm-hmm. if you played your cards right. Where now that's kind of done with in a way. So that's how they do it now. That's how it's different from how it was before. Again, I will be making a video about that at some point to kind of explain it further and 
this is all thanks to David for testing this out for us when he was there in July. So thank you, David, for helping us clarify for you. Yeah, this new system is very confusing. And it seems that even the cast members aren't 100% sure on how it works because, like David was saying, a lot of them are using handheld scanners on yep. the Magic Bands, and even they weren't super confident that it would work. Yeah. And the time, your return time varied a lot. Some of them would give you a return time for like, they'd look at the wait wait time and give you an hour past that. So if you got in line and the wait time was currently 30 minutes, the return time would be starting 30 minutes from now and going out one hour. Sometimes they would give you one for later in the day. I've heard where people said the cast members have asked them what time they wanted it. Mm -hmm. And before with the rider switch, you used to be able to kind of get double rides for for some people because let's say you have two kids, one is tall enough to go on the ride and one is not. One spouse and the, the taller child could go on the ride, get the rider swap for the other adult. And then when that adult rode, they could take the taller child again because you were allowed to take up to, I think, three other people with you on the rider swap yeah. pass. And technically, I think now that is not allowed anymore. Yet again, I've also heard stories saying that some cast members will also add the fast yeah, pass to some of those people, but it kind of depends on the cast member. So it, it's, I, I know this isn't necessarily helping, but they're really just kind of trying it out right now, it seems like. And your, your mileage may vary depending on the cast member and whether the technology works at the time. So... Yeah, we're definitely in a transition period when it comes to the new rider switch. So we'll just kind of see how it goes. And it seems like the cast members are definitely in that transition as well. So like I said, I'll make a video on that. And if you want to see the old video, that is up on our YouTube page. Next question is from Demi. I'm super curious about how the announced opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge might impact crowd predictions and levels throughout 2019. Any thoughts? I think, Brian, this would be a great opportunity to have Fred Hazleton back on our show oh, yeah. to talk about this. Yeah, Fred, uh, I know I know Fred and, and Steve, our statisticians, have been already been looking through Galaxy's Edge for both Disneyland and Disney World because our crowd calendars go out one year. So one year is already most likely covering the opening or darn close to it now for Disneyland and will soon be covering the opening for Disney World. Disneyland is expected to open next summer, Disney World in late fall. So that I guess is November-ish maybe. In short, all the crowds at Hollywood Studios are going to go up wildly. I mean, when when oh, yeah. when Star Wars uh, Galaxy's Edge opens, Hollywood Studios will be effectively a 10 on the crowd calendar for me, yeah, for the foreseeable future after it opens. Probably if it opens, say, early November, all of November and December will basically be 10s. Now, they may not actually be 10s. What I mean by that is that we measure the crowd level based on the attraction wait times and it's very possible that only the star wars rides will have huge weights and the other rides in hollywood studios won't be that bad so it may not actually be a 10 10 on the crowd calendar but it will be crazy busy anywhere near star wars land will be crazy busy so i think you can expect that to happen for both disneyland and and disney's hollywood studios that the the crowd levels will be higher the wait times will be higher how that will affect the rest of the parks uh that i don't know that would will be something that we will talk to fred about yeah stay tuned 
Nancy says, I tried to get reservations for two people for Disney Early Morning Magic in Fantasyland on November 25th, but they are not available. That is a busy time of year. It's around Thanksgiving. Do you think they might become available or once it's sold out, there is no chance? You know, Nancy, it could be that it's too soon. Disney usually opens more dates about three months beforehand. So I would check in maybe in August for, you know, to see for sure. Maybe they just haven't put out the dates yet. But Brian, what would you say? When I did Early Morning Magic in January, and uh, on our YouTube page, I do have a video about that as well. I waited a little bit too long to book and it filled up. And I was kind of annoyed and nervous because part of the reason I was going to Disney World was to to film that and the Disney After Hours event. And I couldn't get tickets for this, but I just kind of kept checking every once in a while. And about a week or two before the event, I they just more times opened up. So I would just keep checking. November 25th is also my birthday. So that doesn't really have anything to do with it. But is yeah, it it'll be really? my 40th birthday, this one. So it's uh, both happy and a little depressing but you know it's all right well it'll be happy for me because that's the day i fly into disney world good times for everybody i hope that answered your question nancy neil said what's the best two-bedroom disney vacation club resort to recommend for people staying on property for the first time and uh, he's talking about renting points from someone else now i think it really depends on a couple things I would say it depends on where you want to spend most of your time as far as the parks. And I think it depends on, you know, how much room you want. Like if you're talking about more space in your resort room or, you know, like I said, what park you want to spend more of your time at. And also I would say budget. I mean, if, uh, whether you're staying on points or always renting points, I see. So yeah, there will be some that will be more expensive than others. So that could also change. Brian and I would both agree as far as space, Old Key West would be the way to go. Oh, yeah. I mean, Old Key West is by far the biggest. Yeah, you just get so much room. Brian recently stayed in a one-bedroom, which he has a video on, and I am doing that in two months now in, in September. And just, mm-hmm. it's huge. It could be like you could live there and have plenty of room. Yeah, where alternatively something like Bay Lake Tower is one of the smaller ones, I believe, but it's within, you can walk to the Magic Kingdom from there. So if you are primarily going to spend time at Magic Kingdom, that would be a good choice. Something like Beach Club Villa or Boardwalk Villa, you can either, you know, walk to Epcot or take the boat or walk to Hollywood Studios. So those are are both good. But Bay Lake Tower and like Beach Club Villas are are a little bit more expensive than something like Old mm-hmm. Key West would be. I will add on to what you said about Bay Lake Tower. Since he's looking at two bedrooms, I did stay at a two bedroom at Bay Lake Tower. I actually had a theme park view. There's a good amount of room and it really did work for our family. And it, what I like about it is that it's technically two hotel rooms. So there's two entries so uh, the, the main space is the kitchen and kind of like the balcony and the, the living space. And then on either side are the hotel rooms. So you have your own separate entries for your family. And one is just like, you know, a king size bed and the other is two queen size beds. So yeah. you really do get your space. And I believe that two bedroom sleeps, I think, eight to 12 people, eight I know for sure eight, if not 12. Yeah. So you do get a decent amount of space. Yeah. I mean, all two bedrooms are going to have, usually it's it's one bedroom with a, a, a 
queen or king, another bedroom that has like two doubles or two queens. And then there will be a common space that, you know, is the living room kitchen area. That type of two bedroom is called a two bedroom lock off where it is, it is a studio, a studio room and a one bedroom. And you just can open the connecting door. There are also some rooms, although fewer now, I think, than there used to be. I think all the newer ones are the lock-off style. But there are Mm -hmm. actually still some that are. I stayed in one at the old Wilderness Lodge Villas, which are now Copper Creek, that was a legitimate, like, just two-bedroom, like, suite room with only one entry door into it. Those do still exist, but those are are less common. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's a a good segue because I was going to say that um, if so, the prices are are a little much at something like Bay Lake Tower, Copper Creek, or Boulder Ridge, uh, both are at Wilderness Lodge. Boulder Ridge are the ones that are in the big Wilderness Lodge building. Copper Creek is the separate building kind of next to it Mm -hmm. that used to just be called Wilderness Lodge Villas. Those, I think, are a pretty good good combination of location and price. They're quite a bit cheaper than like Bay Lake Tower would be, but it's still pretty good access. You just take the boat over to the Magic Kingdom. It's a nice woodsy setting. I like those a lot for that kind of mid-tier in between, price-wise, in between something like Old Key West or Bay Lake Tower. Yep. And that's for the Magic Kingdom area. Mm -hmm. And like Brian said, for the Epcot area, I've stayed at the Boardwalk Villas. Those are really nice. Not my favorite as far as decorations, but I know that that has been refurbished since the last time I've stayed there. And I love the area. It's my favorite resort as far as being on the Boardwalk and being in the Epcot area, just because I like being where the action is. But they do have other options as well, like Brian mentioned. Okay. Lisa's question. For paid extras like dessert parties, early morning magic, Disney after hours, Star Wars guided tours, etc., what are your top three picks that are totally worth spending the extra cash for? All right. Well, Brian and I, we, we really haven't done a dessert party. Have you, Brian? I've done the the old Wishes dessert party when, when Wishes was still playing a couple of years ago. And I've done the World of Color dessert party in California Adventure before. I've done early morning magic and and after hours, as I mentioned in in one of the previous questions. Yeah. So I can definitely talk about those three. And you've done a couple of the tours, right? Yep. I have done. I did the Segway tour at Epcot back when they still did that. Oh, I did that one too. Yeah, that's right. That was a blast. But unfortunately, they got rid of that one. That was too bad. And then I did the eight-hour Keys to the Kingdom tour. So between the two of us, we could probably give a pretty good answer. I would say for the dessert parties... It really depends. So the World of Color one was nice because it involved seating and a really good view. And for World of Color, it is mostly standing room only. So being able to sit down and still see over people, that was, that was my, although it was very expensive, it at least, you know, had a, a very good benefit there. The Wishes dessert parties, now the the Happily Ever After dessert parties, I still want to say Wishes. It's at the Magic Kingdom. I don't know why. But um they tend to be off center views. Mm -hmm. So they're not, as good a view and in some cases the castle is a little bit obstructed by you know trees and things so you know you can see most of the projection but not all of it that kind of stuff is is a little tricky the illuminations dessert party i've heard you know the view there is is awesome so i mean you have to remember with that stuff you're paying more for the seating and the view than you are for the actual desserts the desserts are fine right but it's hard to say those are totally worth the money extra morning magic and after hours 
both of those I can see arguments for and against. Early morning magic, you, it does include breakfast, but it really only includes three rides, Peter Pan, Seven Doors Mine Train, mm-hmm. and Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. You can ride them as much as you want because there are no lines whatsoever. It's but those are the only things you'll be able to do. Yeah. After hours is more expensive, but it is a longer period of time. And you can ride almost everything in the park if you hustle a little. There are, uh, the lines are almost non-existent. There are some lines still for a Seven Doors Mine Train. I think when I did it was about a 15-minute wait. But uh, you can ride a lot of stuff there. So those are probably depends on how much you really want to do, um, whether you'll get your money's worth out of those. So what do you think about like the tours and stuff? As far as the tours, I wish they still did the Segway tour because that was awesome. And if you didn't, if you don't know what that is, basically they taught you how to ride a Segway and then you would Segway through the pavilions at the World Mm -hmm. Showcase and your guide would tell you about each pavilion and you'd learn trivia and a bunch of facts about each one. And it was so interesting. And you would do this before the World Showcase was open to the public. Mm -hmm. So it'd be completely empty. It was just a wonderful tour. When I did mine, it was the first one of the morning, which was like 8.30 in the morning. Yeah, so me too. When we went in, like Epcot wasn't even open. And it was very cool, like rolling around there with no one around. Oh, I agree. It was awesome. And the Keys to the Kingdom tour was another one that I really, really enjoyed. A lot of people are hesitant to do it because you do go behind the scenes. You know, you go underground to the Utilidors and you go literally, like I said, behind the scenes and you see where they keep the parade floats. And a lot of people ask me, you know, does that ruin the magic? And it really doesn't. It only enhances it for me. And a lot of people are kind of like, they think that the whole eight hour tour is daunting. It goes by so Mm -hmm. fast and they provide lunch for you and you walk on to three rides. I think for us, it was like Jungle Cruise and Haunted Mansion And one more that I can't remember. And your tour guide is amazing. You wear headsets and they tell you trivia about the rides and about everything. And I cannot recommend that one enough. It's definitely worth it. I would do that in a heartbeat. One of the other tours I've always heard really good things about that I've never done is the Behind the Seeds tour, uh, which they do at the the Land Pavilion. And it kind of walks you through uh, some of the stuff you see from the Living with the Land ride. But I hear it's a super interesting tour. And I think it only costs like... $15 $15 a person or something it, like it's yeah. it's it's shockingly low for Disney World and it's only like an hour too yeah and and I've I've always heard that that's a really good value for money tour so if you're just looking for something like kind of short and a little bit special mm-hmm. I'd, that would probably actually be my recommendation and then you know yep. other than that I would say like the early morning magic and after hours stuff is is very good depending on how you're touring and what you want to see. Uh, and I have videos about both of those on our YouTube page if you want to see a little bit more visually what what they're about. And then, yeah, you know, any any of the guided tours that they do, I think, are, are pretty good. The Star Wars guided tour that you mentioned, that one right now doesn't – there's not – all that much Star Wars stuff. I mean, you're really just doing like Star Tours and stuff. I imagine in another like two years after Galaxy's Edge open, they'll do some pretty rad Star Wars tours. So, yeah. So as far as our top three picks, we would definitely suggest, you know, a behind the scenes tour or like a guided tour of sorts. We would say either an early morning magic or an evening one, whatever strikes your fancy. And then for a third one, Brian... I don't really know. Maybe, I mean, some of the dessert parties, I've never done the Illuminations or the the Star Wars ones. I've heard good things about both of those. So Everyone that I've talked to about the Star Wars one has really, really enjoyed it. Well, there you go. And the fact that you're escorted by a stormtrooper, people love that (laughs) as well. 
I mean, I guess a third one is kind of one of the dessert parties. I would just do your research and pick one that sounds right for you. And then I, I know people who have done the illuminations one where you sit in the boat and oh, watch yeah, the yeah. fireworks, which sounds Yeah, amazing. the fireworks cruise is that one. Yeah, that one. And that sounds really nice to me as well. So I'm sorry we couldn't pick a third one, but there are just lots of... Yeah, if you're looking to add on for a little bit of extra money, Disney will, will give you options, that's for sure. They will do lots of stuff for your money. I suppose we didn't even talk about the Halloween and Christmas parties either, but those are definitely in there too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Holly, looking for a really good dining spot for a 10th anniversary trip. Victoria and Albert's California Grill someplace else? <laughs> oh man, there are lots of options. Yeah, for yeah you, this Holly. is another one where there are you are not short of options. Although I think if the prices at Victorian Alberts aren't shocking to you, I would just go with that one. Victorian Alberts is yeah, exactly. is hands down the the best restaurant at Disney World. Um, in terms of food, the service is like ridiculous to the point of it, it being kind of embarrassing how much attention they give you. So if, if yeah. that is within your budget, I would just say that one. If it is not, if it is too expensive, and it yeah, that makes perfect sense because it is very expensive, that's when you run into like mm-hmm. a million options. <laughs> California Grill, though, that she does mention, would be one yeah. of them on my short list. I would. I would would say it's beautiful up there too just the views that you get are stunning my family mm-hmm. likes the yachtsman steakhouse i wouldn't say that it's as stunning as california grill as far as what the view you get no probably not as romantic good. either for it, an anniversary dinner yeah but their steaks are really good narcuzzi's though narcuzzi's is is a really good one especially you know yeah if you're sitting right by the window looking out over the water and you can time it like like you would want to with california grill you can time it around you know fireworks time uh, yeah. That's beautiful. For food-wise, I really like Jico at Animal Kingdom Lodge, but again, that's it's a little bit louder. It's not. It won't, wouldn't be quite mm-hmm. as romantic a spot. I, I wouldn't think. Almost all of the deluxe resorts, honestly, have have some really good restaurants. So if food quality is what you're looking for, um, there's there's a lot of choices. For romance, yeah, I would say other than Victoria and Alberts, I would say probably California Grill and Narcuzzi's are the two that are are jumping into my my head. If you're just looking for really good food, then yeah, you could do, you know, Artist Point, Flying Fish at the Boardwalk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say Flying Fish. That's delicious. There's a lot of, of options. Disney Springs has several now. Like. I like how I, like, I go right for Yatsman Steakhouse because I'm like, oh, they make the best steak. <laughs> I would say look at the menus because you might be a picky eater. Or you might just want to look to see what kind of food or cuisine they have ahead of time to see like, okay, is there going to be things that I like there? So look at the menus ahead of time and kind of pick off of that. You know, you might get there, except for Victoria and Albert's. I'm pretty sure that their menus change. Yeah, I believe they, they rotate, but uh, I don't I'm 100% sure how, how quickly, yeah. But the other ones don't. So um, if you can't get into Victoria and Albert's or you decide not to eat there, look at the menus for the other ones and see what sounds good. And you can maybe make your reservations based off of that. But happy yeah. anniversary. That is. Ten years. Congratulations. My wife and I went to a wedding in New Orleans right around our 10-year anniversary. So we just counted that. New Orleans. (laughs) All right. Christina, how does Toy Story Land change Fast Pass Plus plans for trips in the next few months? The touring plan recommends Toy Story Mania and Star Tours, but it looks like I should maybe do Slinky Dog Dash and Rock and Roller Coaster instead. Brian, I'm going to let you take this one. 
This has probably even changed since Christina asked us this question, but the wait times for the new Toy Story Land attractions are are coming down a little bit faster than we thought they would. If you had listened to our episode mm-hmm. a, a few months ago, but with uh, Fred Hazelton talking about Toy Story Land, we were we were not real sure how long the rush would last. We kind of thought that at least through the summer the new attractions would be pretty busy. That doesn't seem to actually have, mm-hmm. have happened. They're coming down to more reasonable levels. Uh, Slinky Dog Dash now, you know, is it still gets up to 75, 90 minute waits on busier days, but it doesn't get up to the, you know, 200 minute waits and things that we were seeing the first week it was open. So one thing you, you have to know about our touring plans, and it's it's something we're looking into adding options on, but for now, it they always assume that you are arriving at the front gate exactly at park opening. So if the park opens at nine, the touring plane is starting Mm -hmm. you at the front gate at 9am. Now, any listeners of this or touring plans fans will know that we recommend getting to the park before the park opens because at Hollywood studios say about a half hour before the park opens up to an hour, depending on how busy it is, they will let you in and you can kind of congregate on Hollywood Boulevard before the park actually opens so that at 9 a.m. you are not starting at the front gate you are starting at almost the entrance to toy story land about the entrance to animation courtyard there is where you you can actually start so if you are there and you are in the front of the crowd you can do slinky dog dash immediately and have no wait or five or ten minute wait something like that but if you are in the middle of the crowd or towards the back of the crowd by the time you get to Slinky Dog Dash, you will probably have a 25 or 30 minute wait. But after that initial rush, that wait doesn't increase very much for another hour or so. So what the touring plan is saying basically is if you go and ride Toy Story Mania first, you can pretty much walk onto it. And then when you get to Slinky Dog Dash, you are still only going to wait that 25 or 30 minutes that you would have if you were in the back of the crowd. So that's kind of why it's ta- it's recommending like Toy Story Mania mm-hmm. first. As far as fast passes, Toy Story Mania might actually not be a terrible one because if you are going to be in the front of that crowd, because you can just go ride Slinky Dog Dash first as one of the first ones on, then go ride Alien Swirling Saucers next, and then your and then use your fast pass to jump on Toy Story Mania. That's that's always a good plan, especially if you can't get a Slinky Dog Dash fast pass first thing in the morning. But that's basically why it's recommending Toy Story Mania first as far as as the touring plan instead of necessarily getting on slinky dog dash right away it's saying that if you're not going to be in the front of the crowd you may as well wait another 20 minutes to ride you're not really hurting yourself at all that's a very good explanation brian shout out another one of our youtube videos we did a, a video called a you know, rope drop at magic kingdom where a couple employees from touring plans and i did uh, a test with seven doors mine train where each of us got on about five minutes or so apart and and we found basically that that if you're not in the front of the crowd you are actually better off going and riding like peter pan's flight first and then getting in line for seven doors mine train because if you get in line at seven doors mine train five minutes after the park opens or 15 minutes after the park opens, your wait time is going to be pretty much the same. So it's one of those things where the wait times go up very quickly right away and then kind of stop for 45 minutes Mm -hmm. or so and then start going up very quickly again. So it really just depends on where you are in that opening crowd. Well, and just to plug that video even further, when I was getting ready for my July trip, 
you know, a few weeks ago, I did watch that video twice when planning my own touring plan. <laughs> so it really is a good one to check out. And I will have Brian link that in the show notes when we put out. And I will attempt to remember to do that. <laughs> Write it down right now. I will have him link that in the show notes so you guys can check it out for yourself because it is a very helpful video. Jessica says, which is better in your opinion, assuming no fast pass for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train? Number one, scheduling a pre-park opening advanced dining reservation at Be Our Guest to get in line for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, or two, going to Magic Kingdom on a day with morning extra magic hour from 8 to 9 a.m. instead. Thank you so much. Now, I personally would go with option number one, but I would love Brian's take on this because I do option number one so often that now I'm kind of questioning if that's the right choice. If you are already thinking about going to eat breakfast at Be Our Guest or anywhere else, you may as well try to get that that 8 a.m. reservation and get in line or, or ride early in, in many cases. One thing you have to watch with that is if it is a day where there is an early morning magic event, they will not let mm-hmm. you on the ride until the official park opening at, at 9 a.m. If it is not a day with an early morning magic, then you you usually are allowed to ride a little bit before the crowd gets there. So that is probably the biggest advantage there is if you actually get to, to ride it early. And then once the park opens, you can go do something else. You don't have to do Seven Doors Mine Train again. But that being said, Brian, if there was an early morning magic event, you would still be the one of the first people in line <laughs> at 9 a.m. You would. If you had an advanced dining You would, but at that point, you may as well just get to the park at 8.30 and save your money on breakfast and and wait in the hub and and be one of the first ones on anyway. And that's what I'd say with the morning extra magic hour. I mean, it's a little bit less busy than it would be on a regular opening, but you also have to figure, I mean, probably three quarters of the people in the park at opening are going to go straight for Seven Doors Mine Train. So that ride will still mm-hmm. be a little bit busy. But like we just said, I mean, if you get there for an 8 a.m. extra magic hour, if you got to the park at 7.30, 7.45 and got into that opening crowd that's going there, you're probably still going to get on with about a, at most a 25 or so minute wait. And if you're towards the front half of that crowd, it's going to be less than a 10 minute wait. So if the options are spending money on the BR guest breakfast that you weren't going to do anyway, or just getting there early, getting there early obviously would, would be a cheaper version. But if you were going to get breakfast somewhere anyway, yeah, I kind of agree. I would probably rather just go with the dining reservation and then hope, because I, I know I've told this story a couple of times, but I, we did a Cinderella Royal Table and we got to ride Seven Doors Mine Train three times in a row, like tw- two or three times in a row before the park even technically opened. And then you're already ahead. You don't have to do that one again. You can go to Peter Pan. You can walk over to Space Mountain or something like that and not even have to worry about it. So that is probably the best scenario there. I have a question for you, Brian. For the early Mm -hmm. or the extra magic hour, say it's, you know, at 8 a.m., which it usually is, does the park open at 7? Not usually. And the reason she's asking this, because for a a normal opening, which which usually is 9 a.m., they will open the park around 8 to quarter after 8 and let you kind of come in and hang out on Main Street or in the hub. For if it's an early opening, actually the, the video we were talking about where we did Seven Doors Mine Train, it was a Saturday and the uh, public park opening was 8 a.m. that day. It was not an extra magic hour, but it opened at 8 a.m. And then they only let us in about 7.40 or so. And that's about what you see with the extra magic hour too. They'll let you in about 
anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes early because there's just not as many people waiting there as there would be for the 9 a.m. opening. All right. Well, maybe I'll change it up and try to do an extra magic hour instead this time. That was going to be my plan for my next video trip that's coming up in, in August. And then they they changed all the openings when I'm there. So now Animal King, I, I'm starting in Animal Kingdom the one day and uh, Magic Kingdom the other. And they moved both of those up to 8 a.m. openings with 7 a.m. extra magic hours. And I'm just not sure I can get there for 6.30 in the morning. So I may not, I may not be filming an uh, extra magic hour uh, video this time. <laughs> yeah, my daughter and I, she wants to go to be our guest. So we have the reservation. So it just depends if I can talk her out of doing it. I don't think she'll let me. Another thing you have to watch with those early reservations is especially if it's a Saturday or a day with a Halloween or Christmas party, there is a higher chance that they will move those openings, the the public opening up to 8 a.m., basically negating your advantage completely. It is a Saturday and it is an early morning magic. Oh, so then, well, they won't move the time, but it will. you'll just run in the early morning magic then. But yeah, if it's a Saturday that doesn't have early morning magic, there's a pretty good chance they'll move that opening up to 8 a.m., in which case then you don't have any advantage at all. In fact, you're at a disadvantage because now you're getting out of breakfast uh, a half hour after everyone else got in the park. So. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad we talked about this question. Stressful, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Like, I'm kind of sweating talking about it now. All right. Got to look over my plan now. That's why you need touring plans. I know. Thank God. This next question is by Tama or Tama. And I'm really sorry if I said your name wrong. Thanks for taking our questions. You're welcome. I received a a crowd tracker email a few days ago for our upcoming trip and was pleasantly surprised to see that all of the parks, even Hollywood Studios, had decreased by at least one to three points. Just curious about what might have triggered the drops. Brian, I have no idea. This is all you. I don't know specifically. I, I'm not super involved with the, the statistics at the moment. But um, usually that's just in relation to how the crowds have been more recently. And I know, you know, in the summer now, we the crowds just haven't been quite as high as as we thought they might be, especially Hollywood Studios, as we mentioned before, with with Toy Story Land. Were we just predicting maybe higher crowds because of the new land opening? That was some of it. We also, last summer wasn't as busy as summers previously had been. So we had already lowered them a little bit from where they used to be. But a lot of the models, because they don't just go off of last year, obviously, they go off of, of many years of data that we have. So... They still were probably over predicting, you know, a little bit where this summer seems to be more in line with last summer crowd wise, you know, so I think that's a lot of it. Some of it just could be a, a general reconfiguring based on, you know, new information on that I, I'm, I can't really say uh, for sure, but uh, it could be a lot of those things. But I, my, my guess in this case is it probably just hasn't been as busy recently as uh, we thought it might be, which is good. That's, that's always a good thing for travelers. Yes. This next question is by Caitlin. How much time do you allot for parking, tram, and security? I know I want to get to the park early, but how long does that all take? You know, it just it kind of depends if you're in the parking lot and then, like you said, taking the tram and going through security, or it depends if you're if you're parking, then you need to take the monorail and then go through security. We did the the monorail route where we parked at Magic mm-hmm. Kingdom and then we had to take the monorail in from the uh, transportation and ticket center and then go through security. We allotted ourselves about 30 minutes and that was more than enough time. Granted, we got there before rope drop. And like I said, plenty of time. 
as far as, you know, just parking and taking the tram in, again, it depends on the time of yeah. day and how busy it is. I assume yeah. you mean, like you said, rope drop. So, you know, 30 minutes is plenty safe. Yeah. I, 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 I think Magic Kingdom obviously is a is one that takes a little bit longer than the others because you have to get from the transportation and ticket center to the front of the park. So for that one, I would say, yeah, 30, 30 minutes. If you're there before the park opens, if you, if you, if you're getting there, like as the park opens or a little after, which is, we we would definitely not recommend, but um, then I would give yourself, you know, like 45 because you're going to have to park farther away, which means it's either going to be a longer walk or a, or you're gonna have to wait for the tram. The security lines will be a little bit longer at the at the TTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the monorail will be a little bit busier. All that stuff. For all the other parks, I, honestly, I think like fifteen minutes is probably fine if you're there before rope drop up to like a half hour if you're a little late or something like that. Because it, the waiting for the tram in that it doesn't usually take that long, and then security doesn't take that long if you're there pretty early either. So it's really not that much extra time for the non-Magic Kingdom parks, at least. Yeah, when it comes to Magic Kingdom, I think we ended up getting there around 8.15 and the park opened at 9. And that gave us time to, or maybe we got there before 8.15, but it gave Mm -hmm. us time to get breakfast, eat it, and then get in line about 20 to 25 minutes early for Seven Doors Mine Train for that entrance in the hub. So you should be fine if that's your plan. But if your plan is to give yourself... 30 minutes and start at 8.30 and get there by 9, then that's definitely going to be pushing it a little bit. But I hope that answers your question, Caitlin. Thank you for it. All right, Jessica. And this is our final question, by the way. Jessica asks, which character line do you recommend we stand in first for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party? Historically, what is the character meet and greet with the longest wait time? Thanks, guys. Okay, so when I went to answer this question, I read it as Mickey's Mm -hmm. Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. So I wrote down Jack Skellington, the Seven Dwarves, and Captain Jack Sparrow, which clearly not all of them are at the Christmas party. But... Well, the first the first two are, and those would be my first two answers, actually. Oh, <laughs> you're be right. Jack Skellington and then Seven Dwarves Mind Train. You're right. Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas. Or Seven Dwarves, the Seven Dwarves, not their Mind Train. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they will be there, too. So I guess I'm kind of right. Jack Skellington and Sally mm-hmm. uh, are very, very popular, both the Halloween and Christmas party. And they usually start meeting around 7 p.m., but people line up as early as 5.30. So if those are who you want to meet, I would definitely suggest them first. Yeah, and and at least at the Christmas party last year, the seven dwarves were all the way back in Storybook Circus, like where kind of right... Were they that far? Yeah, they were right near where like Pete's Silly Sideshow is back there. They used to be in Fantasyland, like... Uh, they did. by Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, and... Um, Think a year years before, ago, sure. I think they were definitely still there. But no, last year because I shot a whole video about Very Merry Christmas Party for our YouTube page, which I think I've mentioned now twelve times. We're very proud of it. Like yeah. our baby. Well, and that's that's kind of the reason we've done a lot of these things is because be, uh, research for that. So, so the Seven Doors line wasn't as bad as I've seen it in the past. I think partially because people maybe couldn't find them as easily. The Jack Skellington was meeting in the gazebo in Liberty Square. It's where Tiana used to meet. Actually, it's kind of it's a little bit hidden. It's if you walk kind of on the 
the bridge towards Adventureland, and then before you get into Adventureland, take an immediate right and walk towards Liberty Square. You, you kind of get there that way. But it's not hidden enough because that line was like an hour and a half or two hours long every time I walked by it wow. uh, that, that night. So And now that was a sold-out party, so it was, it was pretty busy. But still, that is not uncommon. So I would definitely say Jack Skellington first. And honestly, what I would recommend doing is just when you get there, start asking cast members, go into guest relations, even if you have to, and ask what time mm-hmm. the characters come out and what time like you can start lining up and, um, and see. Because like, like Angela said, a lot of times people will wait a half hour to an hour in line before they even come out, if not more than that. So if that's your priority, I would definitely recommend doing that first and then going straight up to Seven Dwarves probably after that. Or trying to do Seven Dwarves, you know, towards the end of the night. But then, of course, you always run the risk of them telling you, oh, it's too late. You can't get in line. You know, if the line, if the estimated time in line exceeds the time left in the party, they will just tell you you can't get in line, which nobody wants. So mm-hmm. so if that's a priority to you, do that first. Um, I have made several both Halloween and Christmas party videos about that. We can definitely link that below. Otherwise, just check out our YouTube mm-hmm. channel. And Brian will be going to the Halloween party, one of the first ones, right? The first one, August 17th. And I will be going to one of the September ones. Both of us will have them on our YouTube channel. And I'll be going to the Christmas party as well. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for those. And Brian, are you going to be dressing up this year? I always ask if you are, and you always say no. I will be dressed as a Touring Plans vlogger. You're so boring. So I hope we answered all of your questions. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments to make, please do so on Twitter using the hashtag TPPOD, Touring Plans Pod. I hope you have a great day and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Touring Plans Podcast. More money-saving episodes on the way. In the meantime, plan your perfect trip at touringplans.com.